You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Someone asked me how to write a bestseller, and the answer is very simple. I don't know how to write a bestseller. Best-selling novelist Sidney Sheldon. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, look at just about any list of the best-selling novelists of all time. And one of the people you find on that list every time is Sidney Sheldon. During a nearly 40-year writing career, which, by the way, followed a nearly 30-year career in television and movies and Broadway, Sidney Sheldon sold over 300 million copies of his books worldwide. Many of those books were made into TV miniseries or made-for-TV movies. And why not? Because in that earlier career we were talking about, Sidney Sheldon is the one who created The Patty Duke Show, I Dream of Jeannie, and Heart to Heart. He didn't even start writing novels till he was 50. And if you're a Sidney Sheldon fan, then you know (laughs) you can't pick up one of his books and start reading without getting so caught up in it. You have to keep going. Interviewing him several times over the years, I tried to figure out from Sidney Sheldon what made him so good, what made him so popular. In 1988, for example, we talked about his novel, The Sands of Time. And we got some fascinating insights from that conversation. So here now, from 1988, Sidney Sheldon. Put modesty aside for a moment, please, and tell me why, when I pick up a book such as yours, we read the first chapter, we have to finish it. We cannot put it down. (laughs) I do that deliberately. I try to hook the reader because I find very few books that I can't put down. I'll be going to sleep at night, and uh, I get a little sleepy, and I look ahead to see how many pages there are to the end of the chapter. There'll be three or five or ten, and I'll say, all right, I can stay awake long enough to finish that chapter, and then I'll go to sleep. I like to write my books so that when the reader gets to the end of the chapter, he or she has to turn the page and keep going. And boy, I did. (laughs) Practically all in one sitting. Is that recommended? Yes, I recommend (laughs) you read it any way that gives you the most enjoyment. (laughs) I'm going to tell you something that that a very, very well-known writer was sitting in this same room, not on tape, told me off tape, privately. This, this is a person who has several big bestsellers to their credit. They said, if only I could write characters like Sidney Sheldon's. Well, that's very flattering. Do you want to tell us who the writer was? No. <laughs> uh, right. I'll tell you privately later, but I, just, right. I wanted to see you. Rick. Apparently, you have, you have a touch that other writers not only admire, but they envy. What is your secret? If I have a secret, it may be that my characters are very real to me. I feel every emotion they feel. If they're in pain, I'm in pain. If they're hungry, I'm hungry. If I'm writing a sex scene, well, let me just say that I feel everything they feel. I think because they're real to me, they're real to my readers. I I know that, as an example, in Rage of Angels, I let a little boy die. And I got so many letters, angry letters, sorrowful letters. Someone sent me a sarcastic condolence card. How could I do that? A woman wrote to me from the East, giving me her phone number and said, call me, I can't sleep. How could you let him die? It got so bad, Bill, that when I did the miniseries, I let the little boy live. People really cared. Oh, but some people would say that's, that's 
taking too many liberties with your artistic license. I had that, too. People said, why did you change it? <laughs> you can't please everyone. I think what you have to do is try to please yourself. Someone asked me how to write a bestseller, and the answer is very simple. I don't know how to write a bestseller. If you sit down and say, I'm going to write a bestseller, what you're really saying is I'm going to look for the lowest common denom denominator. I'm going to try to please everybody. And I think if you try to please everybody, you wind up pleasing almost nobody. Um, my readers are school kids, teachers, uh, truck drivers, scientists, hookers. I mean, I have an amazing range. I have sold worldwide over 100 million books. So you can imagine the diversity of my readers. If I sat down and said, now... I'm going to please a scientist and a truck driver. How, I, I would be absolutely paralyzed. So you can't think that way. You have to just sit down. I get an idea that excites me, and then I write it as best I know how. Now, you had told me, correct me if I'm wrong, you had told me last time we talked that you begin each story with a character. And That's then right. build outward from that. That's right. Is Jaime the character that you began with? No, the nuns. I thought it would be interesting. Sands of Time is, is about... It takes place in Spain, and it's about nuns in a convent. It's the strictest order in the world. Now, it sounds unreal, but this convent and this order exists all over the world. It's called the Order of the Cistercian. When a woman goes in there and becomes a nun, she is never allowed to leave as long as she lives. And when she dies, she's buried in the walls. Once she takes the order and the vow, she may never speak again. She may never look at the other nuns. They walk through the corridors with their eyes downcast. So I thought it would be interesting to take women who were in this position, knowing they would never see the outside world again, and force them through circumstances into the outside world. So in this particular story, there is a revolution going on in Spain, which is true, the Basque Revolution. The government suspects the Basques of hiding in this convent, and they break in. Four of the nuns escape and fall into the hands of the Basque leader. So the Sands of Time is about the adventures of these four nuns as they cross Spain trying to find safety. And twice at the, at the outset you tell us this is a work of fiction, but... Right. The framework of this story is what's happening in Spain today between the government and the ETA, which is the revolutionary branch of the Basques. And this is so much of what your book, uh, so many of the scenes that are in your book, so many of the things that have happened, I've reported on in the news right here that we write right off the news wires. I know. I hate to say it, but it's going on every day. They're blowing up cars, robbing banks, assassinating people they don't like. It's a terrible revolution that's going on in Spain today. Now, you've obviously been to Spain. Some of these things that you describe... You could not describe by looking at pictures in a National Geographic. Hardly. No. I, um, I research everything in great detail. If I write about a meal in Singapore or Sardinia or, or North Africa, I've had that meal at that restaurant. I went to Spain, and I took a driver for two weeks, and we went through the different routes that the nuns would take going to San Sebastian. I went up into the mountains, down in the valleys, everywhere. When we got to San Sebastian, which is a stronghold of the Basques, we pulled up in front of the hotel, and the driver said, I'm leaving. And I said, what are you talking about? We just got here. He said, the minute they see these Madrid license plates on the car, they'll blow up the car. And he turned and left. 
That's the terror that the people are living under. So the Civil War goes on. It didn't end in 1939. No, this is a different war, but it goes on. Good heavens. Were you frightened? No, I was not. I talked to Basques. I talked to some of the revolutionaries. I talked to some of the government officials. And each one has his point of view. But what finally impressed me at the end is that the Basque people are now tired of this revolutionary group, the ETA, and they would like it stopped. It's like the IRA in Ireland, only it's a little worse than that, apparently. And there seems to be no end in sight. Sounds a great deal worse. Yes. Good heavens. Of course, I suppose you were not afraid in the same sense that Alan Tucker was not particularly, didn't seem particularly afraid when he went up there. Yeah. I mean, he was It's sort of like being in the middle of two warring parties, but you have no allegiance to either side. No, I was there really as a neutral observer. Uh, I tried to be fair to both sides, but I must say the government has been ruthless in putting that down and also in violating some of the freedoms of the people. You know, the Spanish uh, are a wonderful race. They're carefree and filled with song and laughter, and it's also the land of Torquemada and the Spanish Inquisition. So there is that side of it. And the Basques had a perfect right to fight the oppression that the government was imposing on them. But like a lot of revolutionary movements, they finally went too far. And uh, I, tr I try to present both sides fairly. I'm not sure I'll be welcome in Spain again. After this short break, Sidney Sheldon reveals what makes a good ending for a book. There are now two new ways to listen to Now I've Heard Everything. Full episodes are now on YouTube. Just search for Now I've Heard Everything. And if you're on TikTok, watch for the promos we post about new episodes. Tap the link at the bottom of the video to hear the full episode. Now back to my 1988 interview with Sidney Sheldon. If I may be frank with you, I was expecting a different kind of ending. Uh, after having read Windmills of the Gods and having that fresh in my mind as I tore through this, when I reached the ending, it was a satisfying ending, but it wasn't the explosive, uh, hugely climactic ending that you presented us in Windmills of the Gods. What I tried to do, and I tried to do this in all my books, is to have an ending that catches the reader by surprise and is full of twists. I have about three twists in the ending of this book. Uh, often we will read books where the beginning is very exciting and there's a puzzle posed for the reader and how is it going to be solved? And usually it's solved rather badly and the book lets people down. So I'm very careful to try never to do that. You can always tell when writers have just two weeks left before the deadline and they have to <laughs> hurry and finish the book. Yeah. I'm lucky, Bill, because I never have a deadline. My publisher has never said to me, when are you going to finish the book and turn it in? I work at my own pace. And I take a year to a year and a half just rewriting my books over and over and over. You're very meticulous. Yes, I, I think it's important because I don't think the reader should be cheated. I could easily do two books a year, and they probably would be bestsellers because of my name. But I think it's more important to devote my time to making the book as good as I know how to make it before I let the publisher see it. You could probably do two books a year for a year or so until people realized it wasn't quite up to Sidney Sheldon standards. Exactly. And by coming out with, what, about every two or three years or so? Yeah, every two years I do. Plus, plus that, every two that keeps the appetite whetted. You, know, you figure it takes, oh, maybe a week or so or less to go through a book, and then you've got another two weeks and or two years and 51 weeks to go. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I, I also have to make another confession to you. I watched the miniseries based on Windmills of the Gods, and mm-hmm. I, was, I was left confused. The book was much more coherent, I thought, than, than what I saw on the screen, and I had, frankly, to turn it off after about an hour because I, 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 I just went back to the book. I said, I prefer this. Well, it's very hard, I think, to translate a book to the screen, particularly if it's a book with a broad canvas, as all of mine are except the first one. The Naked Face was a very tight, tightly knit book. But the others take place in many countries and deal with a lot of different characters. So when you bring that to the screen, it's hard to keep track of. I haven't seen, uh, what is it, Warren Remembrance that's on now? But, you know, that's uh, a thousand hours going on. And I don't know how, I'm not watching it because I don't watch much television. But I don't know how that's doing or whether the people are able to follow that. Uh, Herman Wook's a very good writer. I do find, though, that the best miniseries, or let's put it this way, the better among them, tend to be those by an author who's, has, who's had television experience. Yeah, I think that's understandable. <laughs> In fact, I even read a review of your book the other day. Um, I think it was on United Press International, just a capsule review that alluded to, it, it, what, what do they call it? They said it, 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 it was a, a, a perfectly written miniseries. They're referring <laughs> now to The Sands of Time. Well, people have asked me if I didn't have the movie in mind when I wrote the book. The truth is, I never do. I don't think about the picture when I'm doing the book. But my training and background is such, because I started in motion pictures and have done the dramatic form, whether television or theater, my training is such that I think in visual terms. I'm used to writing scenes for actors to play and dialogue for actors to read. So when I write a book, my scenes are very visual to me and therefore visual to my readers. May I make a suggestion also that, that it be Kate Jackson, Farrah Fawcett Majors, and <laughs> uh, uh, Jacqueline Smith as three of the... I don't know who Sister Teresa would be, but <laughs> I'm sure you could maybe... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> we'll be getting around to that soon because we're now in negotiation for a oh, sale. Yes. Wow. Things move quickly, don't they? They really do. <laughs> and you don't talk about your next book in progress, do you? No. The reason is it takes me so long to write a book, that two and a half years, that if I talked about my next project now, it could be on television in ten weeks. <laughs> That's true. I've also found when I'm working on a project that if I tell even one or two people about it, suddenly it's as though I've told the story and now I don't need to sit down and tell it again. That happens to a lot of writers. They talk their books and don't write them. I try not to do that. <laughs> Now you've uh, you've you you're getting getting back to how you do it. You start with a character. I've talked to other writers who say they sit down and map out this glorious plot, and I've even talked to one who said she mounts it on all across the wall. There's a whole wall with a flowchart. She knows exactly what's going to happen in each chapter along the way. I suppose each one has his own individual what what fits what fits best. Absolutely, and that's the way to work. Whatever's comfortable for a writer should be the way that he proceeds or she proceeds. Jersey Kaczynski, for example maps out his plot on little index cards and puts them up on a board. He'll come down, have his breakfast, look over the board and say, I think I'll do the murder scene today. And the next day, I think I'll do the breakfast scene today. He just picks out what he feels like doing that day. I have no plot in mind at all when I start. I have a character. For instance, in Rage of Angels, I thought it would be interesting to write about a woman criminal attorney. In Windmills of the Gods, I wanted to write about a woman who becomes an ambassador. Once I get the idea of the character, I sit down and start dictating to my secretary. And as I dictate, the story comes to life. 
other characters come in, and it begins to flow. And I can dictate up to 50 pages a day. How can you keep track of all that in your mind without a flow chart across the wall? Because they're so real to me that it's happening. Sidney Sheldon died in 2007, just a few days before his 90th birthday. Now you can get The Sands of Time by Sidney Sheldon by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. We may earn an Amazon commission if you make a purchase. Now, heardeverything.com is where you'll also find my 1985 interview with another hugely best-selling author, Jackie Collins. I am often asked when I'm being interviewed, do you want to write a you know, better kind of book? They kind of lower their voice when they ask me that. I don't. I write exactly what I want to write. And my 1988 conversation with the author of Love Story, Eric Siegel. When I wrote Love Story, I didn't know how it was going to end. And he says, love means never having to say you're sorry. I knew that was going to happen. But then they fall in each other's arms and Oliver cries. I didn't have the slightest idea that was going to happen. And I burst into tears. And don't forget, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts, including YouTube. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, he has caused a lot of controversy with his teaching in evolutionary biology my 1988 conversation with the author of The Blind Watchmaker, Richard Dawkins. It is really little short of a scandal that our education system teaches people the book of Genesis and don't teach people the truth. They teach people a medieval myth. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.